This is Steve Kim. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Today, I have a special guest with me on the line today, all the way from Florida, Lisa Fields. She is the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project. Uh, I won't say too much more than that. I'll let Lisa introduce herself in just a moment's time, but uh, we'll be talking about different issues, but primarily on the issues of apologetics and also about race, which is a topic that is near and dear to my heart uh, because I'm also a visible minority person living in Canada. So we'll talk about all of that. She is very busy, and so it was a bit hard to get a hold of her, but she has graciously taken some time out of her busy schedule to join me on the show. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So yeah, I understand you're on your way to the airport or something like that. What's going on there? So um, I'm on my, well, actually, I'm, I'm driving to uh, Elena. Uh, driving. Um, we're having our Courageous Conversations Conference. It's our annual gathering. We had it for the first time last year. And it takes, we pair black scholars from progressive and conservative spaces to talk about issues relevant for the church and the culture, like sexuality, the authority of scripture, discerning truth, just a, a wide variety of topics. So it'll be seven panels, 28 scholars, pastors, and thought leaders from across the country from all different vantage points. So I'm excited about it. So going to prepare for that. Right on. Now, for those listeners who are not very familiar with you and the work that you do, would you mind telling us a little bit more about who you are, uh, your spiritual journey, and what it is that you do with Jew3? Okay. Yeah, I'm Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew3 Project, a Christian apologetics organization um, dedicated to helping Black Christians know what they believe and why they believe it. My journey started in undergrad. I've been Christian since high school, well, actually middle school, but I didn't quite critically think about why I believe what I believe till I got to college. And it was at the University of North Florida taking a New Testament course. And my professor saying, I'm going to change everything he thought you knew about Jesus, that um, I kind of was challenged to see, like, why do I believe this? Where did the Bible come from? And I grew up a PK, my father's a pastor, so I knew the Bible. But I didn't think critically about why I believe the Bible was kind of just the faith of my parents that I adopted. And so going through that, my dad introduced me to Robbie Zacharias. And that kind of helped me navigate that space and kind of cultivated my love for apologetics. But I realized as I got further into it, there weren't many African-Americans. And I wanted to do something to change that. And that's kind of where the birth of Jew 3 and from ended up switching my major from investment finance to religious studies and communications. An undergrad after that went into banking by God's providence. Then after two years in banking, um, decided to go to seminary, went to Liberty University and did my MDiv with a focus in theology. And uh, wow, that's quite the switch. Yeah. <laughs> well, after at banking wasn't like a super desired uh, job, but I just needed a job after undergrad. So that was the job I got. And then 
do that for two years. Yeah, that's, so. yeah thanks for sharing that. Uh, now, we have our own annual apologetics conference here in Canada. And every year we try to include different types of people. You know, uh, every year typically we'll try to include at least one or two female speakers, main speakers. Um, we've had Asians before, you know, but what we've found really challenging is including black speakers. And last year was the first time actually that we were able to do that. And we managed to invite and have our conference, Dr. George Yancey, the sociologist from the University of yeah, North no, Texas. Yeah. yeah. And so it was really wonderful getting his insight into different things. And so apologetics, like many other disciplines I find is dominated by white people. Uh, and I see very few black voices represented there. So I'm just wondering, what do you think is going on there? Is this just a matter of our social circles not overlapping? Or do you think there's something more sinister going on in the background? What do you think is happening here? I think classical apologetics has focused on the existence of God and in black spaces for there's very uh, now the black atheism is growing but for a long time very few black people uh believe that there there were very few black atheists and so classical apologetics really wasn't necessarily relevant for the black context so i don't think it's that black people weren't interested it's just that the classical apologetics wasn't answering the questions mm. that were relevant for the black context so do you find that you are a bit of a, pardon the pun, but a bit of a black sheep in your community because you're engaged in apologetics and things like that? What's been your experience? Um, no, I think we have done a good job at G3 Project of the contextualizing apologetics to make sure we're answering the questions that our community is actually asking. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like a, a refreshing thing, the organization, because it's like, yes, I, I know several African-Americans who went to traditional apologetics programs like that was good, but it wasn't helpful for our questions in our community. And so they find it like, okay, this is actually something that we can use. So let's talk a little bit more about that. What are some challenges that are unique to a ministry like yours that ministers primarily to the African-American population in the United States. Could you give our listeners a, a flavor of the kinds of questions that are being raised, the kinds of obstacles and hurdles that you need to overcome that are kind of somewhat unique to your own context? So I think one of the major ones is Christianity being a white man's religion. And most of that is because of the whitewashing kind of a Christianity in America. And so one of the ways in which we're answering this is pushing people further back in time to look at early African Christianity and um, to look at the fact that early church fathers were African, Athanasius, Tertullian. And so helping people understand that Christianity in an African context didn't start with slavery and understanding, being empathetic to know why slave owners did use scriptures like slaves obey your master to further oppress African slaves and early evangelical founders like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield owned slaves and even justified their ownership of slavery because they thought that blacks were kind of like they were saving heathen souls, like blacks were lesser than. So when you think about that, you can understand why people would associate racism with Christianity. And so we kind of have to talk about 
Christianity before slavery to navigate that. Then there's black cults um, like Hebrew Israelites and Nation of Islam. So those are some some unique challenges for our community. And we found that black cults really kind of the theme is the problem of evil dealing with black suffering in America. So that's one of the, the challenges. So let me pick up on that, actually. Uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Hebrew Israelites and the Nation of Islam, could you tell us a little bit more about them? Hebrew Israelites is, um, I wouldn't say it's a, I describe it as a Jewish cult and really a cult. I want to make simplify that a little bit because when people think of cults, they think of something like really out there. And a cult is just a deviation from an orthodox belief. So I describe it as a Jewish cult because they actually um, say that they are the original, that Africans are the tribe of Judah and the lost tribe of Judah. And so they hold tightly to Jewish law. So they wouldn't be considered orthodox Jews, but definitely have a strand of their their thinking within their within their thoughts and doctrines. That's Hebrew Israelites. Um, Nation of Islam would be a Islamic cult that is definitely a deviation from Islam, but holds tightly to kind of the traditional thoughts about Allah. But Elijah Muhammad is a prophet, and so. They have some different interesting beliefs. I'm not a scholar in, in the nation of Islam. I probably know more about Hebrew Israelites because that's what we deal with a little bit more than nation of Islam. Yeah. Uh, now then, let's move on to the question of evil and suffering. Now, when I get a question on evil and suffering, I try to be very careful uh, because... As with some of these other questions, the question of evil and suffering is so often not a merely intellectual exercise, and it comes from a deeply existential kind of a place. And so often this sort of an seemingly intellectual question is often a smokescreen covering something that is that is very emotional and so for example sometime last year my wife's friend lost a two-year-old niece to bone cancer so when she and her family are raising this question of evil and suffering it's coming from a very different place than say uh, what you might hear in the ivory tower so to speak so I would assume that in the African-American community, too, that when the problem of evil and suffering are raised, it would come from a very different place, not just an intellectual place, but a deeply existential kind of a place. Would that be a fair thing to say? Yes, you're right. It's definitely existential and it is very helpful, I find, just to listen, like you said, because people usually adopt these um these cult black cults because of their problems and so they'll start with you know logical things and and then it'll go to if you listen long enough it's a pain and emotion um i remember we were at southern university because we do a hbc tour historically black colleges and universities and a hebrew israelite was in the audience and during q a he was you could tell he was angry he was emotional and he was just trying to convince us, the panelists, that we were the lost tribe of Israel, the tribe of Judah. 
And then he switched and he was almost in tears. Like, well, explain to me if we're not the lost tribe, why are we suffering? Because they have adopted Deuteronomy 28 is their text, 2868, where it says we should come over on ships. So they say that, you know, shows the transatlantic slave trade and identifies us as the Jews. And obviously we've done something against God to allow us to be cursed. And so they explain suffering by the curses that you see in Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. And so that's how he kind of saw the problem of evil in his mind. It's like we're cursed because of our sin against God. And that explains that. And so he was almost in tears and saying, so explain to me why we're suffering. Explain to me why like people are shot dead in the street. And so you see that for him, it started off as an intellectual thing, but it, it ended off with an emotional plea of how do I explain the suffering of my community? Right. So how do you deal with something like that when somebody is raising a point that is very emotionally charged? Uh, what would you say are some do's and don'ts? I think the don't is to not jump to trying to rationalize why suffering exists. I think that's what Job's friends tried to do, right? When you look at the book of Job, at first they sat silent. And that's when they weren't talking, that was the best time. But when they started talking and they started trying to rationalize why he was suffering, that's when things got really kind of crazy. He's like, you're not helping me. And so I think sometimes sitting and letting people express their pain is helpful. And I find often when we do that and then once we have the opportunity to speak, share our own pain, Um, because I think confession to one another is, and then prayer brings healing. That's what James tells us, confess our faults one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So I think that's one of the ways. And then when I think the situation is more stable and less emotional, that's when the opportunity is to like talk about rational arguments. But I don't think when a person has expressed deep emotion that that's the time for rational arguments about mm. the moral problem. <laughs> um, well, here's the free will defense, and this is why the natural evil is so inextricably linked to the moral <laughs> evil, so on and so forth. Yeah, so I think that's. I think sometimes we apologists act a lot like Job's friends mm. in spaces where we should be should be silent, and then when God gives us the opportunity, I think we should be really prayerful with people when people are expressing pain. And then when God, like as we're prayerful, see how God is opening up an opportunity for us to speak to those arguments. Cause I do think, you know, I, it, in apologetics, I say this, there's two wings of apologetics, informational and incarnational. And I take that from Ed Heinz's book on the encyclopedia of popular apologetics. And so I think of it as two wings on the plane. Either we, we are heavy on informational and then we're heavy on incarnational. And it's like, what, what wing on a plane is more important, the left or the right? You need both to, to be effective in what First Peter gives us that charge to do. Right. That's really helpful, informational and incarnational. And I find that, you know, one of the reasons why you 
won't really see somebody on Facebook, for example, as you're having this Facebook debate, you'll hardly ever <laughs> see somebody change their minds just like that and go, oh, I guess I've been wrong all these years. Because social media, as wonderful as it is, and you know, helping you spread information and get in touch with people and things like that, it's not as incarnational, is it? And so information colliding with other information, but it's always in the context of relationship where trust is built, that's where you seem to see the highest kind of amount of impact there. When I engage in Facebook debates, and I sometimes do, usually when I do it, I don't really do it to convince the other person, but rather my goal at that point is just try to get some information out there because I know other people are listening in. Um, But in terms of actually winning the person over on Facebook, uh, people that are listening in might pick up on that. And, you know, when you don't have to save face uh, as my interlocutor, they're more willing to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that was really interesting. But uh, when you're actually sitting down face to face, I mean, it's a whole another world of, you know, nonverbal communication and this trust being built, empathy and all of these things. And I would think that that's especially important when you're talking to somebody who is raising that kind of a deep existential question, uh, like many of our black friends and neighbors really are doing. Um, So uh, I wanted to move on to issues of race, because I I would assume that this is a a very significant issue Mm -hmm. for our day. Yeah, Um, definitely. When we had Dr. Yancey come out earlier this year for our conference. Um, He sometimes gives these talks on the different frameworks, if you will, in dealing with issues of race. Some people would say, well, you know, I'm colorblind or it's all white people's fault or black people or any other minority groups. Really, they need to conform to the golden standard of white society or those kinds of things. What are some of your thoughts on some of some of these things? Let's start with, say, people who say, well, I'm colorblind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the colorblindness is always interesting to me because I think it's kind of a slap in the face to God's creativity because God created us in his image and his likeness with different shades, different personalities because he's a creative God and he's sovereign and that's what he chose to do. And then we see in Revelation that he notes through John every nation, tribe and tongue. So that distinction is important to him. And so I think if color and ethnicity and nation and tribe is important to God, so important that he put it in the canon that it should be important to us. So I think by his very distinction in scripture that it wouldn't be something that he would be pleased with because obviously he he did this for a reason. Yeah, I used to get that too, especially when I was in high school or something like that. My friends, especially white friends who are well-meaning, they would say, oh yeah, I don't really see color. And I thought to myself, really? I I almost felt a little invalidated. I'm like, I'd rather you see my color and actually celebrate who I am rather than just, you know, say it's it's like this my friend although he was well-meaning was denying a part very important part of who i am mm-hmm. um and so i was like no actually i'd rather you weren't colorblind <laughs> yeah yeah and the fact that you say you don't see color when you meet somebody that's of color shows that you actually see color 
that's actually a really good point. <laughs> Otherwise, why would you say that? Yeah. I, I doubt that my white friend would say that to another white friend. Oh, I don't see color. Yeah. So what about um, if we go to the different end of this spectrum? And I've seen some minority groups say, you know, it's all white people's fault. Well, what do you think of that? Um, I'd say, who are we referring to? I mm. mean, when we're trying to, I think what people are trying to articulate is they're trying to say that there is a history in this country that's been denied. And that denial of the reality pushes people sometimes to make general statements because people want to be validated in their hurt, right? And legitimate things that happen in history. And I think the denial of that makes people make these statements because it really is like, I just want to be validated for the experiences I have. And when you deny my experience, then I put the blame on everyone. So it's kind of like, say... A person, you know, when they break up, there's if they've had a very bad experience with a man, a woman has a very, very bad experience with men. She might say after that experience, all men are dogs. Really, she's not dated every man in the world, but right. that experience with that one man becomes the how she experiences every man from that point. And so I think when people have very bad interactions with people of a different race, then their mind kind of sees everybody through that lens. Mm. And until they have a better experience with a, a person, uh, then that can kind of shift the way they think mm-hmm. about that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, It's kind of like how a lot of skeptics regard Christianity, really. They they look at what some have done, and then they attribute that to the whole. And then the reaction by some Christians is to say, well, you know, that's not all of Christianity. That's certainly not me. In some ways, I can sort of resonate with where my black friends and neighbors are coming from especially those from the United States. Not that discrimination didn't happen in Canada, but that's far from the truth. But my grandmother, my grandparents, I grew up with my grandparents and they were born right dab smack in the middle of the Japanese colonial period. So Japan forcibly annexed Korea and ruled over it for 35 years from 1910 to the end of World War II in 1945. And they were born right in the dab smack middle of it. And so they, I grew up hearing all these stories about, you know, how they were treated as second class citizens and how my grandmother couldn't even go to school unless she changed her name to a Japanese name or spoke Japanese and things like that. And so I've kind of heard these stories growing up. Uh, when I was in Bible school, I met a friend who's, well, he, he was, a, he's an MK, he's a missionary's kid, but he basically grew up in Japan and he was Japanese. So this issue came up and we started kind of talking about some of the historical things. And what he said was, well, we're not the ones who did it. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know what? You're absolutely right. You're not the ones who did it. But somehow it felt to me like what I, all my feelings about this issue just got dismissed. You know, like I'm not even asking for your apology, but why, why do I feel this way? Right. What's the reaction from the black community when some people say, well, we're not the ones who did it. What goes on in your mind when you hear something like that? I think I understand it because it's like I want to disassociate myself because I mean the worst thing I think white people fear is being called racist but I think 
what we could say is that you may not have firsthand been a part, but you benefited in some way. If we were running a race, you're two laps ahead um, because of the fact that we were enslaved. So economically, there's things that have happened that have hindered progression in our community. There's a wealth gap. So you may have not firsthand did it, but because of who your ancestors are, you, you benefited in some way. And so I think that's what people want people just to acknowledge. And I think I always like to think about scripture. I was shocked reading the book of Ezra and thinking about how Ezra prayed. And he always repented for the sins of the children of Israel, even things that he wasn't personally guilty of because he realized they were guilty as a collective. And I think American individualism and just in the West, we think of everything as what we personally did. And I think scripture is more communal than that. So I'm always, I'm always amazed in the ways when you see the Old Testament, how Old Testament prophets and priests pray because they understood something that I think we miss. And I think if we kind of reconcile with that, even you see the model prayer are, our daily bread. It's a more communal, we take communal responsibility. I think it'll help us deal with this a little better. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I myself am an Easterner. And so the culture there is obviously more collective uh, than it is in the United States or in Canada. And I always remember growing up as I was reading the Bible, I would come across passages where a whole family got punished for what an individual did. So, for example, if you remember the story of, uh, I think it's, what, it's in the book of Numbers, where they, they go to war and somebody, I think it was Achan, that brings in some spoil that he wasn't supposed to, yeah. and they cast loss, and they eventually uh, pinpoint exactly who did this, but then the whole family gets punished. Mm -hmm. And I find that a lot of my friends in the West, they look at that and they have a hard time reconciling that in their minds because they, they think, well, it was Aiken's fault. Why is the whole family getting uh, punished? And here I am sitting there thinking, yeah, that's that's exactly what happened <laughs> in my culture, right? And this was a common thing. Like, you are never just an island, but you represent something more. Like, you are part of something bigger. And, and that sort of collective mindset that I find a lot of my Western friends have a hard time grasping. Uh, I find that we focus on different issues, different aspects of this story, whereas my f Westerner friends tend to focus on the personal guilt and innocence. I focus a little bit more on this idea that I'm never an island. My actions actually impact those around me. And so I have to be actually very careful. In fact, this might give our listeners a good flavor of the kind of collective mindset that we're talking about. Growing up in the East, my dad always told me, Steve, you need to behave yourself in public because when you don't, you bring shame not only on yourself, but on the whole family especially the parents. So I grew up with this mindset that, you know, my actions, especially in public, are never my own. It, it impacts those around me. Mm -hmm. I, I am tied to my family and I'm tied to my clan, if you will. Now, thus far, we talked about some of the don'ts in discussing issues of race and whatnot. So what do you think would be 
some of the helpful, more helpful things? I think knowing the history, um, I think majority culture really has to do a better job of educating themselves on the impact that slavery, Jim Crow, and all of those things have had, segregation have had on the black community. And knowing those facts and in conversation, starting with showing that they know the history, because I think that's helpful. I remember we had, um, we do this thing called Courageous Conversations, and that's a part of our, now it's our national gathering. But before it became a national gathering, we did Google Hangouts. And I paired a one prominent Black progressive pastor, Otis Moss, with a the dean at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is obviously the SBC flagship school. And what I appreciated uh, about Dr. Matthew Hall at Southern, he's a white gentleman, and at Southern Baptist, but he knew the history. I think that Dr. Otis Moss respected the fact that he started off the conversation like showing like I've really thought about this history. I'm repentant of, you know, the roles in which the SBC is played in this and conservative evangelicalism and him being cognizant of it, I think was disarming, you know? So I think that is one of the major pieces. I'd like your thoughts on this too. Um, when I talk to my friends who are of European descent and that belong to the majority culture and whatnot, and all this stuff about slavery and, and racial injustice, those issues come up, they can't help themselves, certainly not all of my white friends, but some of them can't help themselves feel defensive is probably the right word here. Um, so what do you think is happening here when a black person, say, brings up the issues of slavery in the past and all of these things? Uh, what's going on in the background as you see it? I think there's a tendency for the majority culture to romanticize their history. And uh, I hear all the time from my colleagues in conservative evangelicalism that are white and they'll talk about the moral decline of America. And from a black perspective, it's like we were never on an incline to decline from. <laughs> um, right. <and> Slavery <laughs> isn't exactly the, the most moral thing that's happened yeah. in our history. So every time I hear that, it's like, okay, you have a romanticized view of America. And I think what happens is the truth tears down their romanticized view. And so the defensiveness shows a pride that I think needs to be dealt with because I think we have a high view of ourselves in America, this American exceptionalism. And so when the truth is brought out, it kind of challenges that, that narrative or that idol we have in our minds. And so I think it's good for that idol to fall down. I think it's good for that narrative to be corrected in the minds and to really, if you recognize that we are sinners, and you understand the doctrine of total depravity, you shouldn't be shocked that your ancestors are capable of such heinous sin. Uh, because it is a part of our, our nature as humanity, born in sin, shape, and iniquity. So it shouldn't be a shock if you really have that concept. But if you say it, but you don't you haven't really internalized that we are inherently wicked, you will struggle to see see that reality. 
I think that's super helpful because uh, I mean, not just American exceptionalism, but we tend to have this um, elevated view of ourselves uh, when we're talking about this. We f- somehow forget momentarily that we're all sinners, and I think that's really helpful. I remember uh, just seeing this quotation on Facebook just a little while ago. This image of Charles Spurgeon, and so I assume that this is from him. But he said, "If if a man calls you wicked, don't be surprised. You're much worse than that." Right. And so when when we have that view, I think it would help us be a little bit less defensive. I think that defensiveness sometimes comes from this need to justify ourselves. I'm like, I'm not as bad as you say that I am. And so understanding the doctrine that, yeah, we're all we're all sinners. We're all in this together. I think that sense of we are all in this together, I think, would really help in that dialogue. Now, maybe this is a question that I should have asked a little earlier, but I'm just curious, as you're working through Jew 3 Project, what is the impact of apologetics on the Black community that you've seen? Um, I think anytime you equip them with the tools they need across any race, it gives people confidence. Because I think uh, one of the great things about apologetics is it is the confidence builder for those who are engaging people that don't believe are unsure and when you give people the tools they're more confident because i think that's one one reason people don't share their faith because they don't want to come across people who may be more educated than them or may be more studied so i think it it is a confidence builder it it helps fortify their faith and it gives them the freedom to ask questions because i think people across races have this thing especially if you were raised in church that, you know, you don't question God, but I think apologetics gives you the freedom to question. And I think that's one of the, a gift that you can give people. Cause I believe a faith that can't be tested, can't be trusted. And so mm-hmm. when we allow people to test it because it's the truth, then that gives that confidence that I can trust this book. I can trust mm-hmm. this faith. I can trust in Jesus. That's so good. As we wrap up, if our listeners want to learn more about you and your ministry, where can they go? Jew3project.com, Jew, the number three project.com. And all of our social media handles are on there, our podcast links, conference links, everything is there. You can give on there as well. Awesome. And how can our listeners pray for you? Um, well, we have courageous conversations coming up. And so that is one of the Biggest prayer need. Also, our fundraising efforts uh, is challenging raising funds for apologetics across the apologetic world. All my colleagues have that challenge, but it's especially challenging for the African-American space. And so that's another, I think, another prayer point. Yeah. So I encourage our listeners Please do keep Lisa and her ministry in prayer uh, and especially Courageous Conversations, that conference. I I know from firsthand experience that putting together a conference takes a lot of work. 
And so please keep Lisa and her team in prayer for that. The conference is coming up on August 1st and 2nd in Atlanta, Georgia. So if you're in the area or if you care to travel there, be sure to register on Jude3project.com. There, I'm looking at the website right now. There are some very fascinating topics that are going to be covered, like rethinking hell, the nature of sin, Paul's sexual ethics, preaching to black millennials, and more. So make sure you check that out. Thank you so much again, Lisa, for taking some time out of your busy schedule to, to talk to us. Thank you, Steve. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm really glad this worked out. I pray traveling mercies on you as you drive to Atlanta. And you listeners, thank you for joining us. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, take care. Take care.